Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be considering the future. And our subject is the resurrection of the dead. What we believe about the future impacts profoundly what we do in the present. The barrister spends her time preparing for the court case. The accountant readies himself for the audit. The student prepares for the exam. Fail to prepare for the future, your future will fail. Over the next few weeks, our aim is to put in place a proper Christian understanding of the future so that we put in place proper Christian priorities for the present. Our subject is the resurrection of the dead. For some of us, I suspect what we're going to speak about in these few weeks will involve a radical shift in our thinking. For many, like the Corinthians to whom Paul is writing, what we are thinking of is by way of reminder though I suspect they really have forgotten. Chapter, verse one of chapter 15, now I would remind you brothers. For all of us, as we consider the certain future that awaits us all, Paul's view is that it should have a profound impact on our holiness and purity, on our single-mindedness and devotion, on the goal and direction of our lives as we commit ourselves to the service of the Lord in the body of his church. 
It's striking to me where this letter to the worldly church in Corinth begins and ends. It begins the first four chapters at the cross. It ends, chapter 15, the resurrection. These two fixed points in history govern the believer's values, goal, direction in life. Our subject is the resurrection from the dead. In verses 1 to 12 of this famous chapter 15, Paul explains, because Jesus rose, so will you. Paul is crystal clear that what he has to say about Jesus' resurrection is not new news for the Corinthians. Nor do I think Paul especially doubts that the Corinthians still believe the resurrection of of Jesus. Nonetheless, in verses three to four, he covers the basic facts of Jesus' resurrection. And in verses five through 11, he covers the essential evidence for Jesus' resurrection. But Paul's point in reminding the Corinthians of what they believe already about the resurrection of Jesus is in order to persuade them that they ought to believe about their own resurrection. And so verse 12 is the climax of the first 12 verses. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no, and I would prefer it to be capital R, resurrection, capital O, of, capital T, the, capital D, dead. How can you say there's no resurrection of the dead if Christ has been raised? The resurrection of Jesus then demands the resurrection of the dead. Because Jesus rose, so will you. Whether you like it or not, you will rise. This world is not the end. The basic facts are there in verses three and four. Verse two makes us wonder, well, do they actually still believe it? You know, he says, unless you believed in vain, it just spreads just a tiny question, doesn't it, about what they really do believe? But verses three and four, he goes over the basic facts again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. The word is on behalf of our sins. On the cross, Jesus carried God's judgment For all that you have ever done wrong, he paid the price for your sins. Christ died for our sins. Literally thousands of people died on crosses in the first century, nailed there by the Romans. Only Jesus died for our sins. Every other person is not qualified to die for other people since they have their own sins to die for. Christ had no sin of his own. He died for our sins. Verse 4 makes plain that Jesus definitely did die. He was buried. The swoon theory, so-called, that Jesus simply passed out on the cross and later revived, is as absurd as it is incredible. 
He was certified as dead by professional executioners whose lives depended on them doing their job properly. He was prepared for burial by intimate wrapping of the body. He was buried. And the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that debt. He was definitely dead. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And this dead body was then raised On the third day, he rose from the grave in accordance with the scriptures. This is no resuscitation. He didn't simply die only to die again. He rose having conquered death with a resurrection body fit for eternity to reign as the resurrection firstborn from the grave to rule forever. And so the physical body of Jesus was certainly crucified. The crucified body of Jesus was certainly dead, and the dead body of Jesus was physically raised. Twice Paul reminds us that this is in accordance with the Scriptures. And the point is not that there are numerous proof texts that individually point to the death and resurrection of God's Messiah, though there are. The point is that the whole corpus of the Old Testament, from the opening paragraphs to the closing sentences, speak of the death and resurrection of God's Messiah. Open the Old Testament anywhere you like, and it's part of the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God promises from start to finish that the curse of his judgment on this rebellious world will be lifted through the death and resurrection of the Christ. He died in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And once Paul reminds us that what he's writing here is as of first importance, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is foundational, instrumental, essential, vital Christianity. This is the Christian faith 101 that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised. From verses 5 through 10, we move from the basic facts to the essential evidence. We are now in the courtroom. One legal boffin has calculated that if each of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were to give 15 minutes of their own testimony, we would be in court for over three weeks of continuous evidence time. My QC friend has said, having converted to Christianity, why do you believe I am compelled to? The evidence demands it. Here is the evidence. Notice as we go through them that the eyewitnesses are well represented. There are numerous of them. This is not an hallucination. Hallucinations don't take place with over 500 witnesses. The risen Lord Jesus appeared on repeated occasions with multiple proofs to numerous people. They are well represented. They are also respectable, reliable witnesses. This is not aliens turn my son into an olive or double-decker bus found on Mars of the Sunday people headline. This is reliable, respectable eyewitnesses who went to their grave rather than change their message. And notice that they're reformed. Some of them didn't believe. Jesus appeared to them. They believed. Cephas is Peter. 
Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, that is the 12 apostles. I take it that's with Matthias, Judas having already departed from them. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, not an hallucination, 500 brothers. There must have been women there, possibly up to 1,000 people. Most of them are still alive, so you can go and check it for yourself if you want. That's what Paul's saying. Then he appeared to James, that's James, the brother of Jesus. You try persuading your brother that you died and rose again. See what he makes of it. And then he appeared to all the apostles again, and last of all, says Paul to me, as to one untimely born, because, of course, he appeared to Paul on the road to Emmaus. But now the punchline, and the punchline is there in verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So the resurrection of Jesus is a fact on the table of history, and the resurrection of Jesus demands the resurrection of all. Because Jesus rose, so will you. And the logic is irrefutable. Because Jesus promised that his Messiah, because God promised that his Messiah would conquer death, having been enthroned, alive, would rule triumphant over this decaying world and ultimately raise all people who have ever lived to judgment on the last day, then with the resurrection of Jesus, it's all set in motion. With the resurrection of Jesus, the fuse has been lit. With the resurrection of Jesus, the dam has burst. With the resurrection of Jesus, the tide has turned. With the resurrection of Jesus, the end has begun. Because he has risen and ascended, so you will rise to be judged. So do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Uh, Do you believe Jesus was buried? Do you believe that Jesus was raised? Do you believe that Cephas saw him, and then the 12, and then more than 500, and then James, and then the 12 again, and then Paul? Well, this resurrection guarantees your resurrection. You will rise. And the day is coming when he will summon you from your grave, assuming you have already died. Your body will rise as a resurrection body to judgment, and you will meet your maker. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is not some weird eccentric aspect of the Christian faith held only by those on the more radical fringes. This is essential to the entire Bible message. In one form or another, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed in the resurrection of the dead. Why else did they take their bones to be buried in Israel? The psalmist believed in the resurrection of the dead, maybe not with the same depth of understanding as we have with the resurrection of Jesus, but the psalmist believed in the resurrection of the dead, as did the kings of Israel. Isaiah wrote of the resurrection of the dead, "'Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise.'" Daniel believed in the resurrection of the dead. Those who sleep in the dust shall awake. Remember Martha, sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the grave. Remember what Martha said 
to Jesus before he'd explained about the resurrection to her? Oh, I do believe that he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Old Testament believers believed in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus taught it. I am the resurrection. Uh, Do not marvel at this, said Jesus, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Jesus taught the resurrection of the dead. The first sermons preached by the apostles. The priests were greatly annoyed because Peter and James were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Paul in Acts 17 God has set a day when he will judge the world by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. The early church believed in the resurrection from the dead. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Do you say your creed? The 16th and 17th century believed in the resurrection of the dead. We will affirm this in a few moments' time. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. All around this building are evidences of people in the past who believed in the resurrection from the dead. The Honorable Robinson, buried up there above the gallery, well, actually buried out there and taken off somewhere now, but there's his tomb, 1591, wife together with his wife of 36 years, nine sons and seven daughters, their bodies sleep in peace until the summons of a glorious resurrection. Valentine Mortcroft, just in front of me here, 1641, bequeathing his body to the earth to wait for a glorious resurrection. What part does the resurrection of the dead play in your thinking? I wonder. It seems that the Corinthians may have believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but they didn't think that they themselves were going to rise physically. We'll have much more time on this in the weeks to come. It seems that they were dualists. They thought their spirit had been brought alive, but the physical body was like a snakeskin to be shed and to perish. All that mattered then was their own spiritual experience now, the physical was irrelevant. This is so important that Paul Newton now moves back through the logic in reverse order. And verses 12 through 19 spell out the logic, 13 through 19 spell out the logic in reverse. If you don't think you're going to rise, everything falls. At first glance, it might seem that what Paul is saying, if you don't think Jesus rose, everything falls. He does say that. But he's actually saying, if you don't have a solid concept of a physical resurrection, the whole lot goes out the window. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So then if the resurrection of all the dead is not going to happen, then clearly Jesus can't have been raised. And if the resurrection of Jesus demands that the dead will rise, then if the dead won't rise, Jesus himself can't have been raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, everything else crumbles. Now, at the 10 o'clock meeting, we have the benefit of a visual aid in the children's talk, and the preacher is always very grateful for that. And Jenny Davis had built an enormous Jenga tower and uh, tried taking the bottom Jenga, whatever you call it, piece out, and you know what happened. And that's essentially what Paul is saying. One of the earliest talks I ever gave was on the resurrection of Jesus. I came to this passage and had the titles, without the resurrection of Jesus, no faith, no forgiveness, no future. Not a bad set of titles, not really what the passage is about. But he does say, without the resurrection, no faith. Coming to church is pointless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the uh, apostles are false witnesses. Uh, Being here this morning is a complete waste of time. Go off and play golf. Uh, Without the resurrection of Jesus, any attempt to live the Christian life, it's a total facade. Stop doing it, won't you? Uh, Reading your Bible and saying your prayers, it's all built on a giant fraud. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, uh, because there's no resurrection from the dead, then it's all a complete sham. Give up, please. No faith, no forgiveness. You are still in your sins, he says in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Of course, because the resurrection of Jesus proves that what Jesus did on the cross worked. If the penalty for my sin is death, when that penalty is paid it is inevitable that resurrection follows. You see Mike Thorpe sitting in the front here. Imagine he were to come up into the pulpit with an ax and plunge it into my head. And uh, there are quite a number of legal characters here, and no doubt you would have him incarcerated, hopefully, for many, many years. But imagine if he was still alive, which is highly unlikely when he'd finished paying the penalty for the murder, How would you know that he'd finished paying the penalty for the murder? He's gone into prison, the gates are shut. There he is in his uh, suit with the arrows on and all the rest of it. How do you know that he's finished paying the penalty and that the justice is satisfied? Oh, the gates open and he springs forth. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus is proof, if you like, that what Jesus did on the cross worked. (laughs) But if Jesus didn't rise... You're still in your sins, unforgiven, futile faith, no forgiveness, no future. Verses 18 and 19, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, still in your sins, then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most 
to be pitied. So this is not so much about our resurrection, but it's about, the re about Jesus' resurrection. It's primarily about our resurrection. And you can see that from verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And you can see it from verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And there, then we're ready to begin to draw things together. We have four weeks on this. There is much, much to be said but clearly the Corinthians had loosened their grip on this key doctrine. They had some sense of the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't seem to think that they were going to rise. And so they considered the Christian life to be a matter of personalized spiritual experiences today rather than physical service and selfless sacrifice for the resurrection kingdom of Christ. Paul reiterates, he died, he was buried, he rose. You can have faith, you have forgiveness, there is a future, and that future is the resurrection from the grave. And on that day, you will spring from your grave to join Christ at the resurrection from the dead. I've asked myself why Paul begins with the cross in chapters one through four and ends with the resurrection in chapter 15. I take it that a worldly church that hasn't understood the cross is still governed by the value systems of this world. If you've not understood the cross, you will be governed by the value systems of this world, not God. And I take it that a worldly church that hasn't understood the resurrection still thinks its essential home is here. The resurrection from the dead changes all that. You and I, one day, will have these increasingly decrepit bodies of ours raised for eternity with Christ. And I know some of you sitting over here don't think your body is decrepit. Just keep breathing. Just keep breathing. Your body will be raised for eternity with Christ. And so chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians, everything you do in terms of godly living is worth it as you spring from the grave and are welcomed because you've lived with your body for the Lord Jesus. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Glorify God with your body. And so every act of devotion and single-minded giving of yourself for the benefit of others and their salvation, chapters 8 through 10, giving yourself to God in selfless service, it is worth it because you were raised from the grave. And every act of living selflessly for the growth of the church, his body, loving your Christian brothers and sisters, is worth it because there's a glorious future beginning at the day of judgment 
when he will raise you from the grave. Verse 58 of this chapter is where it concludes. We'll just dash there now and, and finish. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that is godly living, devotion, and serving his people in the church. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Many of us will have stood at gravesides in these last 12 months and lowered bodies into them. It is the moment when most we see the futility of a life lived out with only this world's horizons. I vividly remember driving away from the first funeral I ever went to, that of my grandmother, thinking, what, what was the point of it? What was the point of it? The resurrection of the dead changes it all. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we praise you for these facts on the table of the death of Jesus for our sins that we can be forgiven. We thank you that he died, that he really did pay that penalty that we deserve. We praise you that he rose in accordance with the scriptures. And so we praise you that we also will rise, that there is a day of judgment, an eternal future, a glorious new creation. And thank you that we have the Lord Jesus as first evidence of this. We pray, our Father, over these next weeks that in your kindness you would imprint this truth indelibly in our thinking and decision-making. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.